0: Bible reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 to 20 that's the whole first chapter Uh, if you've got one of the church Bibles you can find it on page 960 (coughs) 1 Timothy chapter 1 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy my true son in the faith Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, But for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme.
1: Good morning, church. Uh, my name's Mikey, if you don't know me. I'm part of the leadership team here at Southside, but uh, my main ministry is pastoring church over in Sunningbank called Providence. Uh, which uh, is on in the afternoons at 5 o'clock. Uh, I was here actually over Easter, so a lot of you have heard me recently um, preach here at Southside. We're um, starting this new series here at Southside, Living in the Mess, and we're doing that at Providence as well, so uh, it's, you know, it's, it's nice that we can overlap and um, yeah, I can come in here and, and share from God's Word, and these guys will be hopefully coming into Providence as well um, <clears throat> to share as well over the next, what, eight weeks or so. Um, how are you all today? Good? Good. It's good to see you all again. Um, every time I come here, it's uh, you guys all know me, but it's really hard um, to know it. remember everyone's names. So if I do see you afterwards in the in the cube over a coffee, um, just remind me of who you are. <laughs> um, let's get into this. I'm going to pray for us. Um, One Timothy is, is interesting. I love what Elizabeth read for us earlier. Uh, that um, Paul is really honest with himself, and we're going to. Unpack that a little bit more. What he means by that? He's, he's um, the, the gospel of Christ came into his life, and and he calls himself the worst of sinners. I really love that um, in this chapter. But we're going to unpack that. Let's let's get into it. I'm going to pray for us, Father. We do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through it, and we do pray, Lord, tonight, uh, today, as we. Um, unpack one, Timothy, that you'll speak to us, that that Paul's writings to Timothy and the church uh, in Ephesus will be an encouragement to us, but also be a challenge to help us reflect on our own lives and how the gospel impacts it. We do pray for that, and we pray that uh, we'll live in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So every time I come here, I like to share a little bit more about myself, so you guys get to know me. Uh, Growing up, there was certain things that happened in my household uh, to keep order. Uh, The first thing was that before entering uh, you'd have to remove your shoes. That was, that was the no questions asked, no matter how smell your feet were, your shoes always came off at the front door before entering. That's, I grew up in that type of household. You have to take off your shoes. Now, culturally, there's a reason for that, but also, let's be honest, it's just cleaner. Let's you know, just take your shoes off before you go into the house, right? Um, and when it came to eating, we, we'd eat dinner together every night as a family. No TV or radio was allowed to play in the background. We'd have to focus on our food, because as children, we wouldn't always finish our food, so no distractions, focus on your food, finish it, right? And every night, we'd be there together as a family. We, we might have light conversation at most, but, you know, focus on your food. A bowl of rice was what we'd eat most nights, every meal, and we'd eat with, you guessed it, chopsticks. Now, if you don't know, I'm Asian. <laughs> I do have um, a Chinese-Taiwanese background that means... A lot of things. When when relatives or or friends come over to our house, no matter even if they were strangers to me, I would address them as auntie or uncle. There would be no first name basis stuff. That would be disrespectful. Funny story, when I first came to Southside uh, and I met the the session, the leadership team, some of the elders here, I was really tempted to call them uh, uncles, but um, I had to call them by their first name and that just blew my mind. But um, that's, that's what it was like. I grew up with these expectations. And uh, my siblings and I, we were all encouraged to grow up to become doctors or lawyers, to become very uh, successful and, and make a lot of money. We had these expectations in our household. When it came to sharing how we felt, well, let's just say you, you, just, don't, <laughs> you just don't share your emotions. My dad uh, showed us love not by ever saying it. It was about putting food on the table. It was about working hard. My, my dad was a, a refugee immigrant. He came uh, in the 70s and... Um, he never complained. He worked hard seven days a week, every day of the year, and so what have we got to complain about? We grew up in Australia. Shut up, eat your rice, get your head in the books. That was it. At the same time, my parents, we, I, I've got five sisters, right? So there were six of us. And um, having five sisters means the whole household was, was estrogen filled. And that means it was never really quiet, it was chaotic. We all had feelings, a lot of feelings, and it rubbed off on me a lot, too. We all had a lot of feelings to share with one another. We all wanted to voice ourselves, and we'd fight, and we'd scream, and argue all day long. But, no, shut up, eat your food, get your head in the books. It's funny, because our household was a mess. It was a zoo, but that was life in the Thai household. If you get to know my wife, Heidi, she shared about her life growing up as well. She said in her household, there was a war zone between the eastern and western values. Heidi, she grew up with a tiger dad who withheld emotions and affection. And if if you've met Heidi, and some of you have, um, you know she's bursting with emotions and feelings. She wears her heart on her sleeve, and sorry was just not part of the family vocabulary. Conflict was never resolved. Instead, family members would, would respond with screaming matches, the silent treatment, or by just running away from the problem. And she shares this in one of her blog posts. Growing up, my dad and I saw the world very differently. As I became a teenager, our relationship became a battleground between Eastern and Western values. He would fail to meet my expectations of a loving father, and I would feel, fail to, to meet his expectations of a respectful daughter. And while I longed for love to be expressed through the Western form of affection and affirmation, dad expressed love through the Eastern lens of provision and sacrifice, much like my dad. And as a migrant without any education, my dad learned, to, 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 uh, learned English while juggling three jobs. He wanted to secure for me the education he never had. Despite our differences, I had to trust that dad loved me in the only way that he knew how. This is how I grew up. This is how Heidi grew up. We were raised in certain contexts, in cultures and environments, and we've all adopted certain ways of how we do life. It's interesting. That's the story for all of us, isn't it? How we handle certain situations, how we communicate with others. We're a product of our environments. And I wonder, what, what are some subtle traits that you know come from your family, perhaps? The way that you were raised. How have they been brought as well into this new church family? This, the family that you have here. Perhaps it's not eating food with chopsticks, but it might be how you communicate. It might be how you behave. It might, it, I, I mean, um, I have some friends who are from Asian backgrounds as well, and they bow to their relatives when they see them bow to people who are older than them. When they, when they go to church, they bow to people who are, are older members of the church as a sign of respect, respect, respect. And it might be just a small gesture like that, or it might be something deeper. Some of us have been raised not to say sorry. You, you hold your head high. You, you were taught to be tough, resilient, unapologetic for your actions. You, you, you can't show emotion. You can't show weakness because your dad would have told you to just suck it up and get over it if you did. You might have been taught to put your head down. Don't rock the boat. If there is any conflict at all, just sweep it under the rug. Put on your your big Sunday smile and come to church without dealing with any issues. And we're raised, right, to avoid conflict. And we come to church and we put our our masks on and, and pretend everything is okay. Now, have you thought of something? You see, that's you. You bring that into the church family, And that's me. I bring my cultural upbringing, what I learn from from society and my family, my context, I bring that into the church family. And everyone in this room has brought their own culture, uh, the way that they were raised, those those habits, those traits into this church family as well. And so we're coming into this community full of, of different people, a mix of different people, and guess what? It can be a real mess. There's there's disorder, there's there's sometimes conflict, there's division. And sometimes it's just really hard to do church together, isn't it? And so where do we start to get some order up in here? (laughs) Where do we start so that we can live together and be unified as God's family? With all our different family origins, different cultures and baggage that we bring to the table, what will shape this church family here and how does what we believe shape how we do life together? Now, if you're new here and you're new to church, well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to our church family. It's going to get messy at times. But we're glad you're here to hear how what we believe aims to shape what we do and how we live together in this household and this new family that God is building in and through us. Um, what, we, what we believe about who God is shapes how we, we do that. If you aren't a believer here um, or you're a skeptic here today, Uh, we hope that 1 Timothy will actually give you a clearer understanding of how we do church, how we do life together, and what is front and center to what we're about. So it's important to start with the purpose of 1 Timothy before we start the series. We uh, want to align our head and our heart to what God is saying to us through this letter to our church. And from what was read for us, we're given a bit of information. You can keep your Bibles open at 1 Timothy because we're going to unpack this. Uh, So this letter is to a guy called Timothy. And we have the Apostle Paul who's writing to him to encourage him in this role of pastoring this church. And it's really, it's really cute, isn't it? Because Paul calls Timothy a true son in the faith. And Timothy's not his actual biological son or anything, but already Paul considers Timothy a son because of the faith that unites them. And you hear that at church a lot, don't you? You hear that this community, we call ourselves one big family. It's because the Bible describes members of the church like this. We, we're to treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ because of Jesus. What he does is he brings us together into this family where God is our heavenly Father. And Paul writes about this later in the letter in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I'll read this to you. Although I hope to come to you soon, soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. There it is for us, right, in chapter 3. As we get our head into this book, uh, this letter to Timothy, here's the purpose, to know and allow the right understanding of who God is and how he calls us to live, to to shape the way we conduct ourselves and to live in this church family. It's that idea, what we believe shapes what we do. Right theology, the understanding of God, is going to, to drive the right worship of God together as a family. Good and right theology leads to good and right doxology, right? Doxology just means the worship and praise of God. So as a church, let's work this out together because that's what Paul addresses in this first, first chapter. Get the theology right. Get your doctrine, get your teachings uh, of the church right and speak against false teachings. So that's what he says in verse 3. I'm gonna read this for you. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so Timothy, right, he's pastoring the church in Ephesus, we're told, which was a Greek city in what is now modern-day Turkey, and this letter was intended for Timothy and for the church to read and understand. Paul wants Timothy to speak up. He wants him to speak up against those uh, who are teaching false doctrine, false teachings in the church, because they're leading people astray from how we are to live in light of Jesus and of the gospel. And we're not given enough information on these people, who or what precisely they're teaching, but we do know that it's meaningless. To the advancement of the gospel. That's what he says. We're told that they're spending all their time with their head in speculations and, and myths, not really asking the real questions of the Bible that call for a response of Christian living. But these teachers uh, in the church, they're, they're spitting babble and hoping that someone will listen to how, how smart they are. They want to they be like rabbis in the church, teachers of the law, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. They're essentially making stuff up, and this is a problem because it's controversial stuff. It, it distracts from the church and what the gospel is all about. And this for me, this, like I don't know if for you, but for me this isn't unrelatable. I've had stuff that comes to me that's just like babble sometimes. Stuff that comes into my in- inbox or in-, in my letterbox even um, about stuff like the number 666 and-, and how rap and hip-hop artists are from the Illuminati and I've got to let the whole world know about this stuff. It comes to my inbox and I wonder, do I? <laughs> do I really need to tell everyone about these conspiracy theories that have no real grounding? That are, that are a bit meaningless to the goal of the gospel? I mean, yeah, sure, Eminem, Jay-Z, they're you know, controversial at times, but they can rap, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't really care if they're part of the Illuminati. I'll still tell them about Jesus if I ever have dinner with them. And so these these, this, these people in the Ephesian church, they bring their the mess, these, these controversies, these speculations, they bring that into the church. And they're teaching people to, to think about this stuff and, and worry about this stuff, but they're distracting them from the gospel of truth and love. They're wanting to be teachers of the law and respected, but they're really just faking it, making stuff up and speculating on things in the Scriptures, wanting to sound smart so they can be heard without actually seeing the big picture of God's redemption story that, that points to Jesus throughout all of the texts, in God's history, and God's, through God's work. And so he says in verse 5, doesn't he, they promote this controversial stuff, but they're not advancing They're not stewarding God's work. The simple truth of having faith in God's grace. And you see, the the goal of that faith is to promote love. A pure heart, he says. It's not going to be weighed down by speculations in the Old Testament. A pure heart of sincere faith is going to see God and more of his saving work through through history, to know him deeper, not to get stuck in the details that, that might not be true, but rather reveal his character to the people. And this is precisely what Paul wants the church to know. Get to know God, but get to know the God, how he reveals himself in the text. Hold to your doctrine, because the more we get to know God's character, the more we know how God calls us to live, practically, with love, with faith. I've had people ask me this before. Mikey, why do I need to study more about Jesus? Why do I need to study theology? I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. Why do I need to study doctrine and theology? I hate reading. Let's be honest. Well... This is it, friends. Our church is messy. And sometimes there'll be people who, who babble on about things that, that don't really matter to the advancement of the gospel. And the message that we're saved by faith in Christ and in his grace alone. We, we need to study the Word of God. We need to study it to be discerning, to know what is helpful for the church and for the gospel going forward. Because we're all gonna come up with our own, we're all gonna come at it with our own cultural lens. We're all gonna come at it with our own baggage, and we're gonna bring that into the church. So we've got to keep asking ourselves. What really matters for the advancement of God's work, and you see, that's why theology and getting our doctrine right matters, and to speak against false teaching. But you know why else we should hold closely to to right doctrine and right teachings? Well, it's really simple. The more we know God, honestly, the more you'll love God. The more you'll see His wonder and His beauty and His majesty the more you'll understand how the scriptures all fit together to point us to the God we know who reveals himself in Jesus and through the cross saves us. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the new. The, the, the aim for, for Timothy, battling the false teachers, correcting false doctrine, is so the church, you and I, can love God as we should and give him the glory. So Paul goes on, and he brings up the law. And so you're thinking, you're thinking Ten Commandments or, or what we find in Leviticus, and he says, yes, Talk about the law of God that's given to us in the Scriptures. The law is good, but only if it's used properly. He's not saying that the law will save us. It's, he's not saying uh, if you tick off all the boxes, it's not a works-based salvation, that if you live by the law of God, God will love you more, um, that you're saved by following a bunch of rules. He's not saying that. Following the law can never be done perfectly. So, so you can earn your way to heaven. Only Jesus, who was perfect in His holiness, only He could fulfill the law in its entirety. Only through him, faith in him, faith in his grace, that's what saves us. But he's saying the law is still good if it's used properly. It's still helpful. Not for the righteous, because let's be honest, no human is perfectly righteous before God, but it's for all of us who are sinners. The human race who have rebelled against God, who have rejected and not acknowledged God in our lives. Right? And he lists out all those things from verse 9 to 10. It sounds like a particular set of sin, skills, sin, but it really is listed much like the Ten Commandments, isn't it? The first few are a reference to how we respond to God and the rest are how we treat other people. He does bring up sexuality here, but concludes really saying whatever whatever else, however we live, that's contrary to the teachings of God. We all fall into this list. Whatever your sexual inclination is, whether you take your shoes off at home or you leave them on, Whether you're a dog person or a cat person, we all fall short of God's standards, don't we? We're all human. And so why is this law given if we can't even live up to it? If we all fall short of the laws, of the law of God, how can we use it properly? Well, it's used to point us to God, isn't it? It's used to point us to love, to love God and to love people. Think about it. Why do we have laws in the world in the first place? Why do we have police to police the law? For order, right? to create order instead of chaos. Back in um, 1969 in Montreal, there was a day when all the police force went on strike. It was crazy. They announced it at 8 a.m. in the morning. Guess what? By 11 a.m., the first bank was robbed. Shops had to close their doors because everyone was just stealing stuff. There There were properties that were lit on fire. It was anarchy. And for one day, police were on strike. There was no law to restrain the people. And so we think about the law of God. We think about the law of God that was given to his people. In one sense, yes, it was to restrain the people, restrain them from sin, to help with order, to love and respect the God who created them, and to respect one another and each other's properties as well, to create a purposeful order. But it was a law that we could never truly obey either, perfectly, and to live up to. It wasn't going to ever save us. It was never, ever going to bring us back into a relationship with God through ticking off all the boxes. It was a system of laws that, was, that would always break. They demanded perfection, yet we could never reach that standard. Why? Because the laws reflect the holiness of God, and we aren't God. The more we fail at reaching the standard of the law, the more our sinful and broken and human hearts, imperfect and needy hearts, are revealed. So in one sense it restrains us, but in one sense it reveals to us who we are before God, doesn't it? And when I think about um, my heart, I think, of here's the truth I need to hear. I don't love God perfectly as I should. I don't love others perfectly as I should. And the law has always been pointing us to that reality. It shows us something about human nature. And when we understand that and uncover the perfect holy character of God through understanding the law and why it was given, the more we can understand ourselves, understand our hearts, understand the hearts of others around us, in our families, in our church families. Why? So that when we see the mess of our hearts, we can see how to deal with and live amongst the mess in the family of God too. Paul shows us that, doesn't he? He uses himself as an example. I'm picking up from verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can just feel Paul's heart here. He writes this letter with this this honesty and this vulnerability and this humility because he knows that he couldn't save himself, that he was a mess, that he needed the grace and mercy and patience of Jesus Christ to save sinners and to save him. And he lumps himself, doesn't he, with that list that he just wrote out. He's not immune from that list, and he's crazy thankful that he's been given the great privilege to serve Jesus, that he's been entrusted with the gospel, with all his baggage, with all the mess from his past. He's been entrusted with the gospel, that he now shares with Timothy and the church. He's so blown away, isn't he, by God's grace. And we read this part, he calls himself the worst of sinners. That's how he sees himself. A quick Bible lesson, right? He was previously known as Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was in a really high rank in the Jewish council. He was a teacher of the law, a typical straight-eight student growing up. He was so zealous for his religion that when the Christian movement began, he went out and dragged Christians out on the street and had them killed for their faith. His mission was to stamp out Christianity from the face of the earth. So in one sense, he was this great model citizen of the Jewish faith. In another sense, he was this violent and angry man, living with ignorance and unbelief to the God he worshipped. And he comes to this place of humility. And with his humble heart, he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. Man, find a guy who looks at Jesus the way Paul does. I mean, that's, that's what I want to be like. And this should be the reality of Christians too. Right? No matter if you're, you're the CEO of a company and you've achieved success in your career, or you've gained the popularity of the masses with followers and likes on Instagram, whether we have all the money in the world, doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, we need to see who we are before God. I'm not Paul at all, but I, I can. I can't not look into my heart and see the same. Here is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Can we echo that in our hearts before God? Do we have that self-awareness and reflection that before God we are needy? That we do fall short? That we don't love God and others as we should? See, this is where it starts. I'm nothing like Paul, right? i I haven't killed any Christians recently, but I have pride and envy and lust, greed, selfishness. That's all there in my heart. I have doubt in my heart. I don't always give God the honor he deserves. Paul isn't anything like me, but my heart and my sin before God isn't much different. See the mess in our hearts like Paul does. And see that to bring order into the chaos in our families, in our church family, and how we conduct ourselves begins first with seeing we need the gospel of grace to show us who we are and how Jesus transforms our hearts of selfishness and pride to hearts of humility and gratitude. He sees our sin and he comes and he cleans up our mess. And that's what happens in Paul's life when he encounters the risen Lord Jesus. How has the gospel of Jesus impacted your heart? The gospel tells us that we who have lived in sin, who have a broken relationship with God, we can't save ourselves. We've been saved only because of God's love and grace that was poured out onto us abundantly. That whoever has faith in Jesus in his death and his resurrection cannot only have their sins forgiven, but be brought into an eternal relationship with the creator God of the universe, where, where deep joy, indescribable love, and overwhelming peace is found. How has that truth impacted your heart? Jesus reached out to Paul in his mess. Jesus reached out to me in my mess. Jesus has reached out to you in your mess. And when that truth takes root in your heart, it resonates, doesn't it? It resonates with the joy in the God we know who saves us. That right theology leads to right worship. Like Paul says here, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever And all of God's people in a loud voice said, Amen. That's what doxology looks like. Worship of God. And when we understand God and his character, when we know our doctrine and learn about the truths of the gospel, it leads us to worship. It leads us to worship in community together because our hearts are filled with the goodness of God and not just focused on ourselves. You see, I want my heart to sing these truths day by day because of the salvation I've received in the gospel. I want Jesus. I want, I want to say, Jesus, you deserve to be the eternal king on the throne, not me. You're the mortal, invisible, the only God I want to get the glory and honor, not me. I want you to receive that glory and honor forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so when people see my life, when people meet me, I want them to meet Jesus. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because our family origins, right, our culture, our society, it tells us, put your best foot forward. Be the best you can be. Show the world how great and how successful you are. Show others how you have your whole life together. And we come to church and we do the same thing, don't we? We come wearing our masks that show how popular we are, that show how successful we are, that show how worthy of respect we are. We save face because we're told from young, don't show weakness. But after reading this, aren't we invited? Aren't we invited just to be, to be real? to be myself, even to the world around me, to be an example of someone who doesn't have his life together, and that's, that's actually okay. Paul shows us that. Someone who I can be, real, I can be honest and real about my, my, my feelings <laughs> and my weaknesses and, and not afraid to expose my, my shame even, let down my walls, take the mask off that I wear, because when I'm able to do that, me in my failures, I can be used as an example of God's goodness in me and through me. I can promote the gospel. God's work in my life, like Paul, like Paul says, and say, Christ Jesus, he's displayed his immense patience. I can be an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. It's time for us to be real. Some of us here, we, we, you might not believe in Jesus yet, and you're looking for answers. But isn't it tiring? We look around the world, there's just so much fakeness Fake news, the fakeness of fame, the fakeness of security, the Photoshop and the filters we put on our photos. I'm, I'm hoping that you'll see us as a church as messy as it can get. I'm hoping that we'll be a community, a family of depth, a people who are willing to put aside that fakeness that goes skin deep and be real with who we are. I'm hoping that our family and friends and the world around us who don't go to church can see that. That we we aren't trying to make a name for ourselves here, are we? We want to be real. To be honest with our human nature and recognise that we need a savior. To be honest with our human nature and recognise that we need a savior. That rhymes. Um so it's not intentional. That's what the gospel reveals to us. We need to be honest with ourselves. And it's that gospel we want to proclaim and promote in this church family here. Don't we want that? Our church family to be shaped by something with substance, to be shaped by the gospel. And so, friends, this is where we start. We start with ourselves. We start with our own hearts. We see the mess and we see the Savior, and we shape our lives around him. Not speculations, not our success, not trying to be someone we're not, but by being real, vulnerable honest with our sin that needs saving we can't simply walk away from this passage in the bible thinking that you and i don't play a part in the messiness of relationships and one thing i've learned about growing up and being an adult is that maturity looks like owning our mistakes isn't that true as you grow older you learn that you should just own it and you know for the christian it's owning our sin We can't just point our fingers at at others saying it's their fault. Their sin is worse than mine. They should be the ones repenting, not me. You see, the Christian life begins with acknowledging who we all are before God and allowing the goodness and and love and grace of God to shape us first so that can overflow abundantly through us, so that this family culture goes deeper beyond our ethnic or, or societal or family background, but the gospel is at the heart and the foundation of how we all do life together here. The Bible calls us to be real. God knows your heart already. Allow the transformative gospel to penetrate deeply so that it transforms your relationships and how you communicate, how you conduct yourselves. Let it impact how you love God and love those around you. Church, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Let it shape this family and how we do life together. Paul says towards the end of this chapter, Timothy, I believe in you. Go to battle. Deal with the mess of these false teachers. Don't sway. Stand firm in the doctrine and the truths of the gospel that were taught to you. We can't let false teachings creep in. We can't let that shape our culture here. We have to let the, the gospel be front and center so we can deal with the mess, so we can have unity, so we can have relationships here that flourish, so this new gospel culture we create can point people, not just us here in this room, but also point people in the world around us to the beauty of Jesus Christ, right? who has saved us who has brought us into a relationship with God and with one another here, Jesus, who is worthy of all glory and honor. Will we be a church family that's shaped by the gospel and promote God's work in and through us? I started sharing with you about my family and Hardy's family, but I really like Hardy's family story because it always hits me in the feels because the beauty of the gospel became really real for her and her dad. Her dad became a Christian uh, a few years back. And the more they, they read God's word together, the Bible, the more they, their behavior changed. And, and the, the cultural gap between them was closed. Their relationship was defined by a new culture. Not of, not of Eastern and Western narratives, but by the gospel. And from her blog post, if you follow her blog, she shares this. Over time, God's words began to close the cultural gap that had once wedged us apart. Our relationship was no longer strained by East versus West. Instead, we started to express love to one another in God's way, with humility, with compassion, and with forgiveness. Dad learned to say, I love you, and I'm sorry. And I learned to listen and to forgive. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine if that was the culture in our church family. Wow. That's that's what that's that's what, that's what having good doctrine and theology should lead us to as a church. What we believe shapes what we do, to a place where we know who we are before God, and how good our God is in Jesus. That allows us to genuinely apologize, compassionately forgive, and 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 deeply love. Let's be the church family that God calls us to be, one that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you will work in our hearts, that you'll convict our hearts of these truths, open our eyes to see your glory and majesty, open our eyes, help us to be aware of the sin that impacts not only our relationship with you, but our relationship with others. We come before you in our weakness, in our failures, in our sin, knowing that you sent your Son to die for us. So that our sin can be completely dealt with. That we don't stand before you as sinners, but as forgiven, sons and daughters, adopted. Father, we thank you. Remind us of that truth, that we have received mercy and grace when we didn't deserve it. Transform our hearts, Lord, by your Spirit. Help us to shape our hearts and our lives and our speech and our conduct. May it be shaped by the gospel of grace and truth that you've entrusted to us. And may that shine brightly through us, Lord, so that our lives are a living testament to your goodness and greatness.